On climate change, I mean, the barriers are largely political. Individual countries and countries working together need to do things to keep carbon down and to find options and to have people lead lives in ways in which are less destructive to our environment. And I don't have a great deal of faith that our political system can do that. Um, I'm not religious myself, but I think that we need to have a new religious leader in the world, not religion God, but religion plant. And I always say Gandhi is the most important person of the last thousand years because he understood that if we tried to fight with weapons, we would just destroy one another, but we have to disagree peacefully. And I think we need a Gandhi kind of figure who can mobilize people across different nations and different attitudes. Uh, on the question where I think I do have something to say, I think in the schools of the future, we're going to focus much more on what it means to be human beings on our planet. And I started my work in psychology with Jerome Ruger, who was a great psychologist, and he developed in the early 60s a curriculum for middle school called Man, A Course of Study. Now we would call human beings a course of study. And that curriculum addressed three questions. What makes human beings human? How do they get that way? And how can they be made more so? And my answer to your question, Mia, is that when curricula all over the world address those questions and try to come up with good answers, I think that's the best chance for the planet to survive, which is the question of climate change, but also to thrive, which is a question of good work and good citizenship. I had two close colleagues, both psychologists, William Damon, a student of moral development, and Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, uh, recently deceased, probably known to many of your audience because he developed the notion of flow, which is that psychological state where anxiety and boredom are mediated by something that really involves and engrosses you. And the three of us were able to spend a year together in a research center. And the question we came up with was, can you be creative and humane at the same time? Creative means having your mind go free, think about all sorts of things, try them out. Nothing is taboo, nothing is off limits, but at the same time, can you do it in a way that's humane and ethical and avoids, for example, creating the uh, Einstein equation, which was a brilliant physics explanation and also led to the to nuclear weapons and similarly with cracking the genetic code. And we thought this was a good question, but we weren't wise enough to come up with an answer in itself. So that's why we spent 10 years, roughly from 1995, to 2005, interviewing about 1,500 people from nine different professions. And it was from that very intensive and extensive study that we came up with the three E's of good work, excellence, engagement, and ethics. Since then, my research group at Harvard has called this the Good Project. And the Good Project is looking at the development of a moral and ethical stance as young as the age of three or four, preschool, all the way to professions in middle life. And we have a website, The Good Project, org where you can read blogs and various papers on this topic. And as Mia indicated, there are also are books in which there's one book called Good Work, another book called Truth, Beauty, Goodness, Reframe, where we describe our current thinking. And you know, I think the study would have been different if we had done it in the age of ChatGPT, but any good concept needs to be rethought and reformulated when there's a new player, whether it was genetics, the understanding of genes, 50 years ago, whether it's large language instruments today. And what scholars my age do is we write about these things, we talk about these things, but we hope our students will carry it through. So I've been trying to organize a network on synthesizing, which now is people from several different countries involved. And my team on the Good Project 
is working with schools in dozens of countries. And the curriculum has been translated into Portuguese, Chinese. It's about to be translated into Japanese. And that's how we hope these ideas will make a difference. Now, if you are um, a pessimist by nature, as I am, you'll say, well, what can a bunch of scholars in Cambridge, Massachusetts possibly do that's going to change the way the world is? And the answer is we can't do it ourselves. We have to find partners and like-minded people all over the world and do blogs and podcasts and write. And uh, I don't do social media, but my colleagues do and try to come out with more positive ways of thinking about things because there's plenty of depressing news and examples in the world. And uh, I like to say I'm a pessimist by nature, but I try to live my life as an optimist. Well, you've definitely put a lot of good into the world. And you also, of your recent book, you co-authored The Real World of College with Wendy Fishman, which is also over 2,000 interviewed students, alumni, faculty, and others. Just tell us about that work. Okay, well, thank you. What you said is true. Having been, Wendy and I have worked together for 30 years and having observed many challenges and difficulties for students during the college years, we decided not to take anybody else's word for it, so to speak. But as you said, we carried out 2,000 semi-structured interviews on 10 different campuses around the country, and we spoke to eight different constituencies, incoming students, graduating students, fresh faculty, administrators, college presidents, college trustees, those are the board's alumni, people who've been to these schools, and parents of students. So we had a huge database. We spent two and a half years analyzing the data. And then, as you say, we published a book called The Real World of College. And uh, in that book, let me just talk about two things. Number one, we found almost no students even knew what ethics was, let alone had any sense of what it means to deal with ethical issues and problems. So they were not being prepared for the world of work. Even when they were ethics centers at these schools, most students hadn't heard of them. And the second thing, where the students were guilty, but their parents and the uh, lobbyists were even more guilty, was egocentrist. Our students used the word I 11 times more than they used the word we, and their, their, the parents used the word I 22 times more than they used the word we, and the lums used the word I 14 times more than the word we. The United States in the 2020s is an incredibly egocentric and egotistic society with people concerned totally about themselves. This is very bad and very dangerous. And one of the things we're studying now and we're writing about it is that colleges and universities have an advantage if they have a mission which everybody understands and agrees upon and tries to achieve. And the United States college and universities suffer from what we call mission sprawl. They claim to be doing hundreds of things and any entity that claims to be doing hundreds of things, nobody takes seriously what they say. Now, if you're not in the United States, you may be thinking, well, what difference does this make? And that's a good question to ask because our tertiary system is very different from that in Europe. We have two-year and four-year colleges where people don't specialize. We call them liberal arts schools, where in most societies around the world, you finish secondary school and you go right to a professional school, whether it's in law or engineering or medicine or journalism or even becoming a, a teacher or a professor. So what Wendy and I, with a very gifted scholar named William Kirby, have done, we're putting out a book called Innovations in Higher Education Around the World. And 22 scholars from a dozen different countries are writing about what's going on in higher education in their own country. And 
we believe, uh, the United States in particular, is very egocentric and it's focused on itself. We have a lot to learn from what's going on in Japan, in Western Europe, in India, in Latin America, in China, in Hong Kong. And so the book is filled with uh, essays from people who write about innovations in their country. And uh, the book should be out in a year or so. So if you want to know about the real world of college in the United States, look for Fisherman and Gardner. If you want to know about innovations around the world, look for uh, Fisherman, Gardner, and Kirby. I actually finished my work on multiple intelligences almost 40 years ago. And since then, I've been focused with colleagues on what we call good work and good citizenship. In our study of good work, we studied nine different professions, dealing from law and medicine to journalism to teaching. And we found out people who were admired and find out why these professionals were admired. And we found out they were admired for three things. One, how excellently they carried out their work. Number two, how engaged they were, to what extent do they really like their work, want to do it, feel good about being at work rather than dreading it. And three, and what you're touching on, did they carry out the work in an ethical way? Now, when it's absolutely clear what to do in a situation, then we don't call it ethical. Ethical is what do you do when a situation is complicated? Let's say you're a lawyer and you find that the client lies to you. Do you let the client lie on the stand or do you say, no, I'm not going to be your lawyer if you're going to lie? If you're a doctor and there are two people who have the same injury and one is a relative and the other is a stranger, what do you do? If you're a journalist and you're covering a story and you see a crime occurring, should you be, remain a journalist and cover it or should you call the police? And so we're very, very interested in how people deal with ethical issues. Now, as you are anticipating the issues of excellence, engagement, and ethics, they have to be re-examined in an era when there are computational systems which are clearly as excellent as any human being can do, maybe more excellent. The word engagement doesn't mean anything when you're talking about computational systems. They aren't asked whether they like what they're doing or not. They just do it. But the issue of ethics is very difficult and very complicated. I, I touched on it earlier. If you're trying to decide what to do in a complicated economics matter, in a complicated military matter, do you leave the decision to the computational system or do you have human beings make it alone or in groups? And this is not something where I have any special insights. My guess would be you should find out what, what various computational systems recommend, but the final decisions shouldn't be a majority vote among chat GPTs. It should be human beings evaluating what these different systems recommend and then living with the consequences of human-made decisions. I don't want a decision about whether to have a nuclear weapon shot off to be made by chat GPT. And I don't want it to be made by Donald Trump either, but I would like to think that rational leaders consulting with one another and being very cautious, life and death decisions. And as you know from your question, there are things which large language instruments could recommend which would destroy the planet, but they don't care. It's not their planet. You're listening to highlights from One Planet Podcast's interview with Howard Gardner. To hear our full interview with Howard Gardner, visit the Creative Process Arts, Culture, and Society podcast. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This series is produced by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Thanks for listening.